This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Sean Lake. Now, Sean is a former professional snowboarder turned manager and the co-founder of Bubs Naturals. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into winter sports, his lifelong friendship with Navy SEAL Glenn Doherty, Glenn's incredible courage defending the compound in Benghazi, how Glenn's death inspired the genesis of Bubs Naturals, and so much more. Before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 558 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Sean Lake. Enjoy. So, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? 
So this afternoon, today, I am planted in Encinitas, California, just about a block away from the Pacific Ocean down in San Diego. Beautiful. Now, I love to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. Yeah, no problem. So I was born in a small fishing town in Massachusetts, Gloucester, Massachusetts. So if you've ever read the book or saw the movie, The Perfect Storm. I had Sebastian on the show. That is my, that is my hometown. Um, so I was born in Gloucester. Uh, my dad was in the fishing industry. So he was what you would call a fishmonger. So he had boats that would go out to sea and bring back, you know, cod and tuna and the various fishes. And he sold them up and down uh, the East Coast to different restaurants and, and food chains. Um, probably the most notable company that came out of Gloucester was Gordon's of Gloucester. So Gordon's of Gloucester was a big frozen fish stick company. My dad sold them a bunch of their fish. Um, my mom was born and my, my dad was born in, uh, in St. John's in Newfoundland. So he was raised in Canada, came down to Massachusetts to start his business uh, with other members of his family. My mom was born in Budapest, Hungary. So she was actually raised, um, she was raised right in, born in World War II. Uh, my grandfather was a colonel in the Hungarian army. And my mom spent her late, uh, not teen years, but her late, uh, early as like eight, nine in a concentration camp in Budapest after the Russians invaded. She escaped and was a refugee out of Budapest that settled in Kitimat, British Columbia. She met my dad in university. English was her second language. Uh, they were married and moved to Gloucester where my family was born. So I have an older brother and a younger sister, and we were all raised our early years in Gloucester. So this kind of fishing family, uh, my mom's an economist by trade. So she's works a lot in businesses, uh, creating operational efficiencies. So I, I always like to tell a story about my mom. I say, Hey, you know how in the eighties you got bills from companies and they're always printed on one side of the paper. Like your phone bill used to come in the mail. It was never digital. You had a landline and you saw every number that was called and every number that came in. And it was like 30 pages in the mail. And then one day, the phone company started printing on double sides of the page and the page count was cut in half. Uh, that was an idea that my mom had come up with. So those little operational efficiencies, uh, and I always, I always love saying that. I'm like, oh yeah, printing on both sides of the page. That was my mom. <laughs> um, so my, my folks uh, divorced when I was young and my mom moved me in the fourth grade to Winchester, Massachusetts. Uh, it's a little suburb just outside of Boston. Um, right off where Paul Revere, you know, ran through Lexington or rode his horse through Lexington and all that famous, uh, history from the American revolution. That's where I met, um, kind of my lifelong best friend, Glenn Bub Doherty. Um, so I was raised in Winchester and I was that classic middle child. I was the kid who, you know, you, when you're a middle child, you kind of try and please everyone. Uh, and at the same time, you're kind of the most likely to be this black sheep, have this, this element of, of moving in a bit of a counterculture direction. Um, so there's firstborn and there's youngest and there's me in the middle. So I was the kid who wanted to skateboard. Uh, I got into punk rock music. I just was walking to a different drum beat back then. Um, and, and probably still today to, to a degree. And, um, you know, it made for a lot of strife in some ways, like teen angst and all that fun stuff. And it was also incredible because I, I just always had a really fun adventure 
going around Boston and, you know, going to punk rock shows, learning how to skateboard in the eighties. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So that was sort of the, the, the formative year. So I was raised, you know, predominantly by my mom, um, you know, going through high school and Glenn was my, you know, part of this crew of high school friends we had, there was like eight of us that just ran around thick as thieves. And I've come to find out in later years, that's not uncommon that you have these best friends from high school. What is uncommon is when you're turning 50, that you're still in touch with every single one of them as if you're still in high school. Um, and I still have a text thread with that same crew of guys that we were so close with back then. And we still, you know, talk endless amounts of crap on each other and wish each other happy birthdays. Uh, during the pandemic, we, uh, we started sending each other little cocktail kits and we were doing some virtual happy hours just to kind of keep that social fabric alive. And we would do these zoom happy hours and everyone would just sort of be on their porch and mix whatever drink their buddies sent to them. Um, and we unfortunately celebrated a handful of 50th birthdays that way, but it was, a uh, it's just a neat way and a neat crew that, that is still in touch. Glenn was really the, the, the core of that group. Um, and you know, and I was just, I was kind of the younger brother of the group. My older brother guy was kind of the main player. I was the kid brother who kind of like played into it. And I think I was such a little black sheep that they enjoyed having me around. Cause I was always going to say something inappropriate and, you know, roll around on my skateboard and be that guy. So, um, but that was, that was my teenage years. Um, I took that kind of like approach into going to college because my mom was hell bent on all children going to college and getting a degree. Um, I think part of that had to do with her own upbringing. You know, she was uprooted from a life in Budapest as a refugee and she had to make her own way. Uh, she wanted her children likewise to apply themselves to that education. Um, I went to college for a year, um, realized very quickly that it was not for me. I had my heart and mind set on pursuing my passions, which at the time was snowboarding. Um, I'd been skateboarding all through high school. I'd discovered snowboarding, fell in love with it. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do. Um, it was pretty uncommon to take time off of college back then. So you can imagine what the conversation was like with my mom and then separately with my dad to tell them that I was going to drop out of college to go and pursue a dream of becoming a professional snowboarder. Uh, at the exact same time, my buddy Glenn was doing the same thing at his house. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to school right now. I think I'm going to take a year off. Um, none of our friends were doing that. So we, we took off. We moved to Snowbird, Utah. Uh, and I was 18, turning 19 years old. Glenn is a year older than me. Uh, dropped out of college and went and had a lot of fun. And that turned into almost a five-year lifestyle of working odd jobs and pursuing this great sense of adventure with a goal. Like there was a, this intangible goal of becoming a professional snowboarder. And, um, you know, I did okay in a couple of little regional contests. I met some of the right sponsors out there and started taking photos for magazines because there was actually print magazines back then and they were relevant. <laughs> so that was a big measure of success was if you could get your photo in a magazine and uh, I'll never forget the first time I got a photo in a magazine and I was able to call my dad 
and call my mom and, and show them that this thing I'd been working towards was starting to happen. Um, my dad died shortly thereafter. Um, really kind of unfortunate health circumstances. He was an absolute workhorse, uh, stud of an athlete, but he got this crazy pneumonia while uh, away on a work trip and it got the best of him. And it was really somewhat unexplainable. No one expected him to pass. Uh, you know, he had some of the best hospital care that he could get and it, it just didn't work. So I, I dealt with death at a young age. Um, and I had a really strong relationship with him. Um, you know, when your parents go through a divorce, there's a lot of kind of teen angst and frustration. There's a lot of blame um, that gets thrown around. And I had gone a, a pretty far way to mend those fences with him, which helped me through the grieving process because I, I didn't feel like, boy, we had some unresolved tensions. I, I felt like we'd kind of, we'd work through that stuff together. Um, my brother and sister weren't in the same position. Um, and I, I found myself in an interesting role to be able to help them understand him more and, and, and just, it was, it was a helpful process. And this has come back up in my life later when you have a role to play in the grieving process, it kind of gives you structure in what you're, what you're going through and experiencing. It is a helpful tool. Um, and, and I, I experienced that with my dad. I was able to tell my brother and my sister and help them understand his love for them and, and you know, his uh, understanding of things he had done wrong and his, you know, his, his grief over those past mistakes. And, and it was, it was very good because it, it added a, a nice human touch to them and understanding that, you know, he had nothing but love for the family. Um, so anyways, once I'd gone through that, you know, my snowboard career took off to a degree. Um, I always say I was, I'm like a B snowboarder. There's like an A plus snowboarder that are getting paid six figures a year winning the X games. And then there's this like level below them where you're still good enough to travel the world and get a small salary and you're getting in magazines and video and stuff. That was me. I was, I was that level. Um, so I'm out there. My best buddy is Glenn. Glenn is a very, very talented skier. We're both working odd jobs to live this lifestyle, uh, you know, waiting tables, washing dishes, you know, being a lifty. He used to tour with the Grateful Dead during the summer. Well, I saw um, that. What was he doing? What position was he holding in that? Because that was an interesting, you know, element of a resume. So it's, it's a really funny one when the resume continues with Navy SEAL. Um, but Glenn just used to want to, he wanted to follow the Grateful Dead on tour. And the only way he could think to pay for it was to sell peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the parking lot. Um, a lot of guys sell drugs in the parking lot. Uh, Glenn was like, well, I, you know, not, not a drug dealer. So I'll sell peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> and, you know, these stony hippies all need to eat some food. A lot munchies. of them are vegans. You get the munchies. <laughs> Here's your $2 peanut butter sandwich. And the profit margins were just strong enough that you could put gas into the tank of the little pickup truck and drive to the next show and get a ticket and go to the next concert. And, you know, it was definitely not a, a profitable model. But one of the things to note about Glenn, and, and this, this is something that not a lot of people have this skill set, is between the ages of, say, 18 and 25, Glenn was one of the most fiscally responsible buddies that any one of us had. Uh, we used to have a nickname for him back then, call him the Bank of Glenn, B-O-G. So whenever you couldn't pay your rent, you go to Glenn 
because you know that he's always saved his money and he would give you a modest loan with a very modest, like one time interest payment. And you borrow a couple hundred bucks, you give him a couple hundred bucks back, plus say 10, 20 bucks. And the Bank of Glen was always open. And he would let's loan his buddies money all the time. And he was just that guy. Like he could make it work. And when he worked, he worked incredibly hard. So he would paint houses, you'd make the most money, and he didn't spend extravagantly. He kept things tight. So he always had a little nest egg. So yeah, you could go tour with the Grateful Dead, make a little bit of money, uh, and then come back and live the ski bum life. So we had these really eclectic jobs. Uh, you know, I would paint houses during the summer. And Glenn would go down to Moab and he was a river guide and he would literally tour people down the green river, down, you know, South of Moab and do these great river excursions. And it was a really cool way to experience the outdoors and to get the most out of that time. Um, Fast forward, we're 24, turning 25 years old. And we're kind of looking around ourselves and going like, okay, what's, what's next? All of our friends have now graduated from college. All of our friends have gotten their first real job. Uh, a couple of them are married. And then you got Glenn and I, a couple of college dropouts living in the mountains, acting like, you know, basic ski bums. And I kind of had my direction set. I had received sponsorships and endorsements in snowboarding. I was starting to receive a little bit of momentum there. And I said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to go back to college. I'm going to go and um, I'm going to wrap up my degree. And I looked at you know the University of Utah where I was based. I could go summer semester, get a full semester's work in a concentrated amount of time, and I can go fall semester. So I get a full year's worth of college and I get the entire winter off to go and snowboard. Everyone's happy. So I really buckled down and made that my job. And then I was getting paid to snowboard, which helped pay for college because um, newsflash to the world when you drop out of college for four years and then go back to your parents, uh, they don't pay for round two. They, you know, they don't. So you better get the most out of that round two. Um, and Glenn, for his part, you know, in the course of all of his adventures, he had met a couple of Navy SEALs. Um, he went on like a, a surf trip down to Costa Rica one of the summers, and he met these guys, and he was working out with them, hanging out with them. They were all in the same little town, and they kind of got it in his head they were saying like, Hey man, like you got what it takes. You could do this job. And Glenn came back. And this is a guy who was always up for the next challenge. He was always looking to the next challenge in his life. And he said, uh, you know, Sean, I, I think I'm going to join the Navy and become a Navy SEAL. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like that Charlie Sheen movie that you can rent on VHS blockbuster. <laughs> and it that was literally what we had to go off of. And I had to say, Hey, well, like, what are you thinking? Like, like, what's behind this? And for him, it was about that next challenge in life. And, you know, like we'd already had the Iraq war that happened in the end of 1990 into 91. And it wasn't about going to war. It was about the challenge. What is he made of? What's inside of him? And, you know, he had set out to become a professional skier. And he was an incredible athlete, but that didn't happen. So this was that next challenge to him. It was very appealing. It was a ton of adventure. It was, what are you made of? It, it had all the right recipes for who he was in, in his DNA. Well, 
Glenn, as he was the Pied Piper and leader of all of our friends in high school, very similarly in Utah, all the ski bums, you know, would, would, you know, Glenn was like this gravitational force that everyone was pulled towards. So you can imagine what it was like when he told all the guys, uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to quit this lifestyle and I'm going to go join the Navy. Everyone was like, what, man, you can't do it. And um, so I drove him to the Navy recruiter and watched him walk in, sign his life away. Next thing you know, he's packing his bags, going to basic training. And a year later, I'm driving down to Coronado to go to his buds graduation. So you got this motley crew of ski bums with long hair and, you know, purple hair, you know, rolling in, you know, down at Coronado to see his buds graduation. It was next level. Um, and it was amazing. Like, cause he made it like, of course he made it. Like that's who Glenn was. He would set his mind to something. He would set out and he would go and do it. And, you know, I had had my own dream on the snowboarding level and it was amazing and fulfilling. So I, all my friends that had graduated college, like I wouldn't trade those experiences at all. I got my degree. It, you know, I, I wrapped it up right when I was turning 30. Um, so, you know, an extra eight, nine years, whatever. And I got to go and travel the world snowboarding. And I mean, what a neat way to, to do things and to see life is, you know, through nature and through the outdoors and, and on someone else's dime. So yeah, that, uh, that kind of brought me up to the end of, of, you know, our Utah chapter, uh, Glenn, of course, was shipped down to San Diego station in Coronado. And I graduated college with a degree in political science. Um, you know, my mom had since kind of packed up the house, sold everything, and she actually moved back to Europe. So the family ties weren't set in Massachusetts anymore. And I was like, well, you know, I think my next adventure is I'm, I'm going to join the State Department. Um, I'm going to take this degree in political science. I'll go take a civil service exam and I'm going to, I'm going to travel the world too. I'm just going to do it with the Department of State. And best laid plans don't always go the way you think they are. Um, I graduated from school in December. The civil service exam isn't until the end of the summer. So I had this like nine months to kill. So I was like, well, I might as well go snowboarding and, and have a blast. And, you know, I quit all of my sponsors and, and I always thought in my head, it's better to quit than to be quit. Like you don't want to be the guy who gets cut. So you might want to just know when it's your time to walk away. And there was all these younger athletes that were way better than I was, uh, you know, on the come up. So uh, I walked away from that chapter. And right when I was just kind of in the middle of my winter, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine and he said, Hey, uh, you know, Burton snowboards this major company in snowboarding. They're hiring for a team manager. You really should apply. Like you got what it takes. You've been in the industry. Like, you know how things work. And I was like, no, man, I got a plan. He's like, I know you do, but you're meant to do this. And so I, I, I didn't reluctantly apply for the job. I just kind of went through the motions of applying for the job and I just talked about this with a buddy about how some of the results you get that are, you don't expect to get happen when you're not overly emotionally invested in something. You can actually just sort of like lay things out as they are. And that, that's what I did with Burton. I, I said, hey, here's all the things that are wrong with marketing and team management. And it was just what they wanted to hear. And I was like, oh, because I was, I was approaching it from the athlete's mindset, not the management's mindset. 
And they end up offering me this job. And it was like way more money than I was going to make with the State Department. And I was going to travel the world. And they asked me to move to Encinitas, California to work with a young kid named Sean White. And of course, Sean White's now been on the cover of Rolling Stone and won a bunch of gold medals. And he's a great guy. I, I, wanna, I keep wanting to call him a kid because I knew him as a 16-year-old. Um, but I got to play a role working with Burton Snowboards and the North American Snowboard Team, which was you know, the pinnacle team in snowboarding. Uh, and that kind of parlayed me into a career in sports marketing and the action sports youth lifestyle world based down here in San Diego. And my best buddy was living 30 minutes south of me in Coronado as a SEAL. So we got to get the band back together. It was great. Beautiful. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a hell of a journey right there. And I want to really kind of delve into some, some areas. The first one going all the way back chronologically. Fast forward, you know, a decade or so, your dad's profession was now slapped all over the History Channel or whichever channel it was. And now we're all learning about fishermen and crab fishermen. Um, one thing coming from the, the kind of wellness arena that I found myself in is there seems to be, you know, a lot of, uh, mental health challenges in that, the seasonal work, um, you know, some of the addiction elements. What were the pros and cons that you heard from your dad about the profession that he was in? So that's interesting. So my dad was like a, a classic grinded out kind of worker. Um, so he wouldn't complain about his work. He wouldn't talk about the negative sides of the work. You just do the work. Um, and that's one of the things that was instilled in me was, you know, you, you just grind it out, you get the job done. So it's interesting. He suffered from the things that you just mentioned. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad went through AA programs and he went through substance abuse programs. This is in the late seventies or early eighties. That's why my parents got divorced. My, my parents got divorced because my dad was an addict. Um, the struggles of that work cycle took its toll on him. Um, and, you know, it's something we've talked about. It's something that we have, we've dug into and it's, you know, he talked about it from hindsight with the, on the regret side of things. Like, I wish I hadn't, I wish I hadn't treated your mother the way I did. I wish that, uh, that I hadn't done the things that I had done. And I understand now in my work cycle and my work career, why some of those decisions, why is sometimes it's easy to grab the bottle and it's easy to, to, to drown your sorrows and to not face some of the challenges. Um, you know, he was in the fishing industry when it is feast or famine. If you don't have a good cycle. Um, now you've got shows like wicked tuna that sort of like they kind of showcase that, and it's definitely to a degree it's romanticized, but there's also some very real struggles behind that. I know that now more historically than from how he lived in it. And, and maybe it was my age, um, but through my teen years, you know, he wouldn't talk about it in terms of failure. That wasn't, that wasn't something he did. And I wouldn't say he was the most successful businessman, um, but I would say that he didn't he certainly didn't lean in on the failure side of things. It, the lessons that he was trying to instill with me were definitely forward thinking and forward moving. 
Yeah, it's just interesting, and that parallels the military first responders. I mean, even the weight of gold that Sean was in the documentary talking about mental health in, in elite athletes, which I'd love to kind of visit in a little bit. So then, that, that, that's real. I, I guess I, I no, should please jump in. It, it's it's not that I'm that he didn't have those struggles. I saw them. I saw the sobriety challenges. I saw the drinking. I watched him break his hand on a wall. He was so mad at some situation. He lacked the self control that he punched a wall. Now we've all punched walls. We've all done, you know, things that we, we have, we wish we didn't. Well, when he punched this wall, this is, I'll never forget this. I was, I was 13 years old. He was incredibly angry um, at, at, you know, something and he's in his new house. So here he is building a brand new house that he's going to get married in and start a new family with. And he punches this wall and it's just sheetrocked, but he hits it square on the stud shatters his hand. Breaks every, you know, breaks all these bones in his hand, and you know he realizes what he's done. And I'm there watching this, and you know he's not mad at me; he's mad at whatever situation there was. And he sort of looks at me. He's like, "Well, I had to test the strength of the wall, and it passed." And I'll never forget it. He made a <laughs> joke with a broken hand. He was in so much pain. Uh, you know, he's driving to the hospital and, uh, you know, getting his hand fixed up and he's in a giant cast afterwards. And, uh, you know, but I mean, tough as nails. I mean, the, the, that, that's the dad that I remember. So I saw the struggles on display, but the, culturally, you didn't talk about those struggles in the way you talk about them now. You don't, you know, you talk, you can talk about regret, but you're not diving in and really peeling back the onion the way we talk about mental health in, in 2021. It's, a, it's an open book. I, I'm far more apt to talk about struggles and failures and insecurities than you ever were back then. Hell no, that, just, that, that wasn't a topic. You move forward. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's that, you know, that facade of masculinity has, you know, put so many people on the ground and it's, it's heartbreaking because being able to tell someone what you're going through doesn't negate in any way, shape or form the incredible grit that you have as, for example, a fisherman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he had it and he dealt with it. And like, I remember struggles in the business again, as a, as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old kid, but you don't really know. You just know, like it's on display. Like he's angry, he's mad, he's frustrated, but you don't quite get all the things behind it. Um, and, and you just, you know, you just, you know, there's something there. But he's not discussing it. He, and he, he certainly didn't take me into like when I was getting ready to go to college to talk about some of those 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 moments that you're going to experience. It was definitely more about armoring up and fortifying yourself to drive it forward. And those were the lessons that were taught to him. Those are the lessons he knew to teach to me. I feel grateful to be in a position now at 50 years old to have enough access to others to be able to talk about those insecurities, talk about what's, you know, where there are some vulnerabilities and you'll know, be able to express those. It doesn't mean you're not going to solve the problems and have your armor on, but it also means you're willing to look in the mirror, see those things. And by looking in the mirror, ideally be able to solve them. Why do I resist certain activities or behaviors? Why do I run away from them? How do I face those? How do I lean into those? That dialogue, it's so much better now, I think, than it was culturally for us 20 plus years ago. Yeah, 100%. Now, going to your mother's side just quickly before we move forward chronologically, 
I've had a couple of guests on from Hungary. One actually was was more recent. She's roughly our age, and she was trafficked, sexual trafficked, from Hungary to Canada. Um, that's my dog grumbling in the background. If anyone heard that, um, and then I had um, Dr. Edith Ego, who was taken from Hungary by the Nazis and was in Auschwitz and survived yeah. and became a counselor. An incredible woman. So, what are some of the things that? your mother carried with her and then and then you know what was her perception of her home country when she returned so great question um one she's not a fan of uh, the current president and that uh, that arrangement she so so my mom was raised in a fairly affluent house in budapest so she you know her father up my my grandfather was uh, you know he was a colonel in the Hungarian army. He was successful. He was in charge of all these tanks. He used to tell me these stories when I was uh, you know his grandchild about you know the military stuff because of course when you're eight years old and ten years old you're fascinated by all that. And he was an incredibly loving, warm man. And because of his role in the military, my family was targeted and placed in a concentration camp. Now it wasn't like an Auschwitz. It was a con- it was it was a detainment center. But it was a detainment center for you know political, um, uh, you know people of interest. And if you're in the Hungarian military and you're the Soviets, uh, Soviets are going to make sure that you're placed in a safe area. So there was a lot of concern that because he was higher up in the military, that uh, you know the family was in danger, and that's why he facilitated the family to leave Budapest to to walk away from his entire life, born and raised in Hungary. And basically say the Russians won. They rolled right in and took over. And this is after he had served in World War II. You know, he'd been through a lot of stuff. And, you know, my mom, as a young girl, was, you know, grateful to receive an orange to eat for, for sustenance while in these camps. And, you know, she escaped in the middle of the night. They went into Germany. They ended up in Canada, in Kitimat, in British Columbia. There was a small concentration of Hungarian refugees and they started life over with nothing. And that always stuck with her. So she remembers having status and clout and things. And so did my grandmother, by the way, which was something I don't think she ever forgave uh, my grandfather for. So Anya, my grandmother, who's still alive, she's 101 years old, still lives in Vancouver. Um, you know, they settled into Kitimat and they took jobs with, uh, you know, the energy company that was, that was local in Kitimat. That was the only industry in town. And my mom learned English as a second language. And my mom's an incredibly smart woman. She's got German, French, Hungarian, and English like on tap. So very handy to travel Europe with. Um, and there was a different kind of toughness that was instilled in her from that experience. And that is, she had to make everything that she had for herself. She never really knew wealth as a child because she was too young to really understand it, but she knew that they had it in Budapest and then she didn't have it her entire childhood. Well, if she's going to make anything of herself, she had to study, learn and adapt. So she adapted and she ended up getting, you know, the ability to go to college at Queens university in Canada where she met my dad and she took everything was probably too serious of a woman in, in some regards to apply herself to that degree and to apply herself to her career. So think about this. You're in the 1960s. You're female. You're going to college. English is a second language. You're graduating with you know, incredible results. 
And you're very much thinking about the career. You're thinking about becoming successful and making a difference. You have a built-in drive. Like it is, it is inside of you, a burning fire. That's my mom. And she didn't roll over because life dealt her a bad hand. She took that energy of being in a concentration camp and applied it. Um, and, and that, that led her through her career path. And she had a very successful career in the private sector, you know, working with Anderson Consulting and uh, EPMG, like a bunch of, of or, I'm sorry, KPMG, like a bunch of big successful brands, helping other businesses, you know, prepare for sales and audit them for efficiencies and, and helping mergers and acquisitions. Like there's a, a lot that she did that was impactful and it drove her and she was very successful. I mean, she was a C-suite level executive throughout her career. And she had three children in her 20s with a degree while working in Boston and hired the nanny and made it work. This is in the 1970s. This was not done. Women dropped out of the workforce to raise their children. My mom never did that. She never quit working. She pulled herself up, you know, the bootstraps, all the classic expressions apply to this woman who was the matriarch of my family. Like she is who I look up to as an example of hard work, determination, and success. Um, and I had more time with her than my dad. So I, that's why I'll probably lean in on the compliments towards my mom. And, you know, she just did it and she did it every day and she never quit. And there was a tenacity and determination that, you know, you don't, you just don't question it because it's just what she did. At the same time, when my dad went through his own problems, my mom took us children to counseling. Again, in the 1970s and the 1980s, I went to Al-Anon meetings and I went to these meetings to understand as a child what it's like to have a parent going through addiction. And I remember being like 10 years old and the counselor like gives me a little foamy sword and my brother a foamy sword. And she allows us to act out the frustrations or whatever that we're experiencing. And we beat the living crap out of each other with these little foam swords. And that was healthy, of course. But I've always had exposure to telling the truth, to being vulnerable, and to expressing yourself. I'm not going to lie and say I've always practiced, but my mom always fostered that environment. And it helped. Obviously, she's female, but she's also Eastern European. So those are some tough broads. Um, so she, she, you know, the, 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 the scariest words I would ever hear as a child would be if my mother said to me, I have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> you knew right then, James, if you heard those words, you better run for your room because you are in big trouble. Um, but she always gave the opportunity to explain, to be honest and be forthcoming. And I will, I learned that lesson the hard way. I tried lying once, 13, 14 years old, got in trouble for, you know, throwing um, water balloons and, and spray painting on, on, not spray painting, um, what do you call it? Shaving cream on Halloween. And I got in a bunch of trouble and I tried lying about it and I got caught. And it was one of those, like, it's, a, it's such a harmless lesson to learn, thankfully, that gave me a lifelong blueprint to follow. And, and I have her to thank for that. But also the accessibility to share your feelings has always been present in our family. My wife kind of jokes about it. She's like, you're so emotional. You're so emo. And I'm like, well, 
You could have it the other way, but I'd rather you know when I'm pissed off, you know when I'm frustrated, and you know why. And it's my job to be able to articulate it so that we know whether the problem lies with me, with you, or externally so we can manage it. And she, we both agree to that, and it, it, works, it works well. And I, I thank my mom for instilling the work ethic, the determination, the grit, as well as the ability to be vulnerable and open about what's going on in life. Beautiful. I mean, that's why I love these early, early, you know, life story moments because there's so much you know, gold to get from parents, grandparents, etc. What What was the the factor that sent her back to Hungary? Because I mean, it, I'm sure she's got a lot of roots set in in the U.S. with family, with her career path. What was it that finally made her kind of circle around back to home? So it, she didn't actually move back to Budapest. To be clear, um, she she goes back to Budapest to visit. Um, but she had an opportunity in her firm to make partner. And when you make partner, um, you have a choice to live and, and, and go into any office. And she said, you know, all of my kids have graduated college. All of my kids have they've kind of set their path up. They're, they're, they're good now. I'm going to sell the house where we were raised in, in Winchester, and I'm going to move to Germany. And there's an office, you know, outside of Munich. I'm going to go live there. And I'm, I've made partner so I can go and command a book of business. And I'm going to just go have a very different experience. She already speaks fluent German. So she went to Germany and hated it. Now, this is mid-90s. This is probably 94, 95, 96. This is right when Glenn's joining the Navy to become a SEAL. And I'm in the middle of my snowboarding heyday. Um, and she, she hated it. So she said, okay, this didn't work so well. Culturally, it was really a very masculine culture. And she's a very strong woman. So she was butting heads with, uh, you know, that, that entire workspace. So she said, let's try London. So a year later, she moves to London. London was a great fit. It gave her access to, you know, all of mainland Europe. And it gave her the professional chops to continue doing what she was doing. And she thrived in London. And that became her home. And she's still there to this day. Um, she met her husband there, um, Steiner who's in the shipping industry. So he builds a lot of big freights and he's an, he's an engineer by trade. And, um, you know, they, they dropped anchor. He's Norwegian. So she's sort of created this, this hybrid mixed family of her American children with her former Canadian husband who passed, um, her Norwegian husband who had children from a prior marriage. So now there's a, this blend of uh, family from Bergen, Norway, and Gloucester, Massachusetts, that can all get together every once in a while, pre-pandemic, of course. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, that is amazing. So thank you for sharing, you know, your your history. Um, I want to get to Glenn's journey in the Navy in a moment, but just before that, you were, you know, an elite athlete in the uh, the winter sports world. What was that like for you going to the management side and, and with, you know, as I mentioned, the weight of gold with, with Sean being one of the athletes that talked about the highs and lows of being under that pressure, you know, what, what did you see within the athletes that you spent so much time with? So, so interestingly, moving on to the management side, I applied a lot of the lessons, a lot of the don'ts in team management that I learned as an athlete, like the worst things that can happen, your check doesn't arrive on time. You're dependent on those funds. Your equipment doesn't show up on time. I will never forget flying to New Zealand for the first time. And I was sent to New Zealand without a snowboard. 
And I had to fly through Los Angeles and LA to Auckland. And the team manager for one of the companies met me at the airport to hand me a snowboard to go on this trip. And it was embarrassing, frustrating. Like it was all the wrong things just to be able to go and do my job. Now, this is the company that paid for me to go on the trip. And they weren't supplying me with the equipment to go. So I just had those things in my head of like the things you don't do and the things that you do do to show someone that you care. And we apply this at Bubs now in my current business every day, which is how do you help someone be seen, heard, right? Like how do you keep good open dialogue with them? So we, you know, I would do things at Burton Snowboards, like make sure we sent out boxes every other month with a couple of t-shirts in it, just like very low cost items that made sure that that athlete felt recognized for the role that they play in the company. Those were the simple things. Um, obviously Burton was a well-run machine. So checks did not show up in the mail. All of that stuff was, was, was established, but then you've got the actual management side, like you're going to a contest and there was a definite fine line in team management back then. And still to this day, you've got the team managers that are there to party. Like they don't get involved in the athletes' lives. They just, they're there for the after party. They show up, they make sure the athletes are there and then they crack a beer and they're off, you know, doing their own thing. But then you've got the ones that are really invested in being with the athlete and that team manager role, it's part friend. It is part boss. It's part psychiatrist. And, you know, that role of being a boss, but also being a friend and being a boss and, and being, you know, a psychiatrist, you got to help someone through navigate their issues and, and give them the confidence that they need if they need confidence or give them the structure they need if they need structure. Like you got to be there for them or not. And that was the difference between the party or team managers and the ones that I think were really invested in the athletes. And this was also at a time when sports management and sports agents were really just starting to enter the equation in a substantial way. So I work hand in hand with sports agents to create schedules for team riders and goals, like measurable goals throughout a season. Um, Sean had that with his family. Uh, and then he of course had his sports agents as well, but you know, with him, it was like, Hey man, like, let's go run the course. We would ride the course together. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you liking? He already had it on lock up here. You just gave him a vehicle to express it. I feel good. I'm going to do this trick, this trick, this trick. And then he'd ask you your opinion. You'd be like, well, if you do this trick up there, you might want to do a different trick down here. And he would just, he was a computer. He'd be like, okay, got it. And then he'd go out and win because he just pushed print. He has very, very good at not getting in his headspace. And just relying on the hours and hours and hours of practice that he had put in. Other athletes, totally different story. Other ones, you got to really make sure that mentally they, 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 they get themselves out of that space. Like I'll never forget working with Kimi Fasani, who's one of the world's best female snowboarders. And you'd never know it by her contest results. <laughs> and I pressure. love Kimmy, but Kimmy, like under the pressure, she didn't do her best, but then you got a camera on her and filming and you would see that and you'd be like, oh my God, if you could just do what you do naturally without the pressure, when you're filming and do that naturally in a contest, you'd have every gold medal under the sun. 
Um, but so everyone's different. So you have to apply that difference and be in tune with the differences. Cause remember, this is an individual sport. We're all individuals and you have to, you have to have dialogue with each one that's unique to who they are. So a good team manager, you know, he's going to, he's going to hopefully apply that well. And you, you can't treat everyone the exact same. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, amazing to hear. And when you see Sean, I mean, it doesn't matter what is under his feet, whether it's a surfboard or a skateboard or a snowboard. And you're like, how, how are you so good? But I think that's a huge point that you said. I actually had a, um, a gymnast who was originally from New Zealand, now in Australia, and she yeah. mentors a lot of athletes. And even areas like nasal breathing, not just right before an event, but actually hours before, mm-hmm. hopefully, that was a difference between being able to smash, you know, whatever routine in the gym away from the spotlight and be able to perform under the lights. And so that psychological element, that breath control element, there's so many things that factor in that, like you said, back then, no one was even really talking about, but now people are starting to get it. And whether it's the sporting world or the first responder world, we all need to understand that so we can perform our highest level. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, One of my good, good friends is a guy named Mike Hazel. Mike Hazel, uh, was a U.S. champion for javelin, U.S. national champion. He went to the 08 games in Beijing. So he's an Olympic athlete. And a lot of his training had to do with the concept of just push print. By the time you get to the competition stage, you're not tweaking, adjusting, or doing anything other than just doing what you know to do. And by just repeating that simple formula after thousands of hours of training, you achieve the result that you're there to achieve. He completely flamed out on the Olympic stage, had one of his worst throws in competition history for him, and he forgot to just push print. And that lesson stuck with him because three months later, he won a national title. Months, months later, he went and won a national title because he didn't care. He'd already flamed out at the Olympics. He had a case of what he would call the fuckets, but the fuckets were actually a key to him to actually be the most successful. It's kind of like when I interviewed for Burton, I didn't really care about getting the job, but I did everything the way I was supposed to do. And I was very honest. Hey, I got the job. Hey, he had a case of the fuckets. He threw his best throw of his life. Um, there, there is definitely something there. Nasal breathing, just to touch on, like Mike and I train together a few days a week. Uh, he's one of the worst friends I could have. Glenn was one of the worst friends I could have for fitness. Mike's like the second worst friend I could have. There's a few others that are just brutal in the gym. And he's like taken to this thing where he takes water bottle. You fill up your, wa- your, your mouth full of water and you do a range of high intensity exercises with the water in your mouth. And your success is made on, can you do the 20 burpees without spilling the water? Just all through the nose. Uh, so it's pretty amazing. There's just some really neat things out there that elicit you know, a really strong physical response, a mental response. There's just, there's just good tools out there. So um, I know we're jumping around a lot, but that's, it's, it's cool to see the level of experimentation, adaptation and evolution in sport, fitness training, and just, Hey man, who we are as men, as women and our ability to evolve. It's, it's, it's an exciting time to, to be around it. If you're willing to participate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Glenn again. I want to make sure that, you know, we talk about you know, the, the, the 
namesake of what you do now. So lead me through through your eyes, kind of Glenn's career in the SEALs, and then let's get to September 12, 2012, and uh, talk about that second yeah. you know, grief process that you had to go through. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess because, you know, like having this conversation, like so much of what I have done in my life was with this best friend, like, like, Hey, if Glenn was alive, he'd be sitting right here. We'd be doing this together, just talking shit and you'd probably cut us off. (laughs) Um, So, so, you know, my best friend joins the Navy, he becomes a Navy SEAL. And and again, I think timing is important. It's important for people to understand, like, this was in 1995. This was a long time ago. There wasn't rule books and YouTube videos and tutorials and expectations and dozens of movies out on the subject. This was, this was some pretty hardcore shit. It's hardcore today. It's just more visible today. It was hardcore then, but you had no idea what you were getting yourself into. So my buddy Glenn joins the Navy. He served 10 years with SEAL Team 3 stationed in Coronado. Um, he was part of the original deployment to Iraq, the second war from, from George Bush Jr. Um, so he was part of that original deployment. He was a part of a couple uh, missions that were notable to in the media. Um, you might remember when the USS Cole was bombed. Um, Glenn was the first platoon in to guard the ship. He calls it the world's most boring assignment because <laughs> the attack had already happened and he was basically there to sit on a boat. Um, with, with a bunch of his teammates, which is funny because I hear stories about the things that they would do now to kill time on the boat. And like my buddy Shane will talk about this story where he's like, he's like, yeah, I, I sat in the boat to see how long I could stay in my bed without leaving. I'm like, didn't you have to use the bathroom? He's like, yep, did it all right there. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on, man. And he's like, you know, he went days days without leaving the bed i'm like what kind of fucked up game is that that you're playing (laughs) but mental toughness so so anyways he he was part of the uss cole and then there was another famous thing that happened in baghdad during the war there was an army girl who like ended up in a hospital was like kidnapped or 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 somehow the iraqis got a hold of her and she was like sent into a hospital it was like all the news headlines were like saving this this soldier, this female soldier, it's Jessica, from this hospital, someone. Yeah, like I don't remember her name, um, but Glenn was a part of the rescue operation that that, that pulled her out. So did he? You did he train this. with uh, Mike Ritland then? Because I heard Mike Ritland had Jessica on his podcast. He's a he's a canine. So Mike Mike is one of my one of my buddies. So Mike go. Ritland is was part of Team Three. Um, Clint Emerson, um, you know, he was part of Team 3. So, so the 100 Deadly Skills book series, Team 3. Uh, Brandon Webb, who's written a bunch of books, Team 3. Uh, so you've got Shane Hyatt, Team 3. Like all these guys, they're, my, they're, they're friends of mine because of Glenn's time in the Navy. Like three of those cats are New York Times bestselling authors. They were all in the same freaking platoon. Like they all like were like, how random is that that all you guys – got out of the Navy, wrote books, have podcasts, are super successful. Like it's, it's, it's next level. So yes, Mike Ritland, uh, you know, he used to come in and hang out on our couch with, you know, these dogs he was training right when he got out of the Navy. So funny stuff, Beautiful. small world there. And he's a great guy. Um, and I was lucky. I was lucky to blend these various groups of friends. Like, yeah, I'm friends with Sean White. I'm friends with these pro snowboarders and surfers and athletes. And then I'm friends with some real pipe hitters in the U.S. military, and 
you know, we had some really fun barbecues there for a while, getting all these different crews together. So good stuff. Um, so Glenn, you know, he serves 10 years in the Navy. He's a part of these, you know, these operations that are in the media, but you'd never know it. Um, you know, he was posted up at Saddam's palace. Like he literally was at Saddam's palace and he's got all, there are all these pictures from his teammates of those guys like standing out front with these big, you know, ornate, you know, decorations. And they're just hanging out at Saddam's palace. Um, and every once in a while, if you follow, you know, Clint's Instagram or Mike's, you'll see those photos pop up and, you know, there's Glenn right in the middle of it. So Glenn moves back to San Diego. He's married. He got married right before his deployment, uh, an old high school sweetheart. So a, a girl that we all grew up with him, Sonia, and it doesn't work. He gets home, he gets out of the Navy, he buys a house in Encinitas, and he's immediately trying to figure out what he's going to do next. And he's always been great about saving money. So he invests some money with Brandon Webb. Um, it didn't work. Like the investment went, it would just shit the bed. Like they bought a house together in San Diego right before the Great Recession in like 05, 06. Like fucking horrible timing. I uh, invested in a second business with Brandon that didn't work. It was for a shooting range they wanted to forge. And all the while, Glenn's pouring money into these investments that don't work he has to continue to deploy overseas. So he becomes a security agent with the Central Intelligence Agency. So he's a private contractor doing GRS um, support for, for intelligence agents overseas. So he's now on this deployment cycle as a private citizen going to Iraq, Afghanistan, Beirut, you name it, these, these dangerous areas helping provide security uh, and the occasional offense, he would joke. He would say, sometimes the best defense is a good offense. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Um, and he'd come home with these amazing stories that he would, he was always very, he wouldn't talk a lot about his work. And, and I should probably pause on that note. Glenn and I didn't talk a lot about what he did in the Navy. And that was on purpose. Um, he was a sniper and he was a medic. I knew he was a medic because he went through, you know, all the, all the training for it. I knew he was a sniper because he would talk about it in very general terms. Um, and he would tell me stories about what it was like to, you know, to triage animals and, and what it was like to snipe. But I never like, I was never the friend who was like, Hey, you know, did you ever have to kill anyone? Those kind of questions I always felt were very, very private. And I always would tell Glenn, if you ever want to talk about what you've been through, I'm here. And if you don't, we're cool, but just know the door's open. And he always understood that. And we talked about his marriage. We talked about the work he did and, and he would complain about it when it was worth complaining about, but we never, we never talked in great detail about some of the things that he had to do in the line of duty. The only thing that he said to me, which I always, always stuck with me, was very succinct. He said, I have learned from being in the Navy that there are some really, really bad people out there that are doing some really, really bad things. And I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I can help turn that tide. I can do some good out there. And that was it. That was all I needed to know. There's bad people doing bad things and my buddy's out there doing good. Okay. And I'm lucky enough to have him as a best friend and, 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 and a family member to me. That's fantastic. Um, but he gets out of the Navy and he's at this crossroads. So when Glenn was left high school and, and went to college, he went to flight school, he went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical uh, School in Prescott, Arizona, 
and he was going to be an airline pilot, commercial pilot, right? Go see the world. That you know, That's a theme here. And then he joins the Navy, gets to go and see the world. And then he gets out of the Navy and he's still contracting, but he's like, what should I do? Should I be a firefighter, high adrenaline adventure job? Should I go work in the medical field and save lives as an EMT? Do I become an airline pilot again? And he was kind of exploring all of these things, but he didn't know what that thing was going to be. Meanwhile, I'm on my career track. I'm now the director of sports marketing at DC Shoes, which is a part of Quicksilver. And I'm running these sports marketing programs. And I'm like locked and loaded on my career in a very fun industry. So I'm like, cool, man, I got my shit. What are you going to do? And it's like, I'm going to go make $150,000, $200,000 a year as a private contractor because that's how I can afford the house that my wife wants me to live in in Encinitas. That's not good for marriage stability. And there was a lot of fights and disagreements and ultimately they got divorced. So in like end of 2008, Glenn moves into my house. Uh, I was married at the time and I, my marriage wasn't doing well either because I was the director of sports marketing and I was traveling all over the world. You know, I remember famously like something like three years in a row, I flew over 500,000 miles. Like I was both platinum Delta and one K on United in the same year, like three years in a row. Cause I turned one K and then I'd flip airlines and I would just travel on another airline. I would just build up my status um, not really thinking. I poured myself into work. I always have, um, but it, it, it had a huge cost to it. Um, but anyways, we were both unhappily married, two dudes now getting ready to turn 40. So Glenn moves into my house. He, he's still on this travel cycle. And then you know, the end of 2009 comes along and I finally pulled the plug on my marriage. And then all of a sudden we're roommates again. So in January 1st, 2010, I move into Glenn's house. And all of a sudden, we're two single guys getting ready to turn 40. And what the fuck are we going to do with our lives? And Glenn was still trying to figure it out. So he, but he, he was trying to figure it out. He didn't figure it out, but he was, uh, he was trying to. So he went back to college, gets his degree. So Navy SEAL has his bachelor degree now. And then it was like, now how am I going to apply this? Ah, fuck, I got to go deploy again. I'll figure it out when I get back. Comes back, he's got all this money. Wow, you know, you're going to go have some fun with that money too. So, you go become the island medic on Tavarua and go on a surf trip. And then you go skiing in Utah. And he was, you know, to, to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. I mean, he was wrestling with what to do. There were some demons in there. There was definitely some fear of failure. There was some self-identity work going on. And from the outside looking in, he's the most entertaining, charismatic, epic human on the planet. Like you want to hang out with Glenn. That's all you want to do because he's so much fun. On the inside, he was struggling with what that thing was going to be. He had a failed marriage. He, he had doubts. He wasn't sure. And, and that was a tough time for him to go through. And it was great to watch him come out of that, come out of that period of self-doubt. Um, it's, a, it's a testament to his own strength and his own ability to soul search and to you know, to be able to be introspective and it, it didn't happen easily. I mean, I'm talking about it very quickly here, but it was, you know, there was a six month period where he moved to Utah at the end of 2009. And he was basically drinking himself to sleep every night in my buddy's basement while being ski bumming out there just to like, not think about what the next thing was going to be. And he rolled back into contracting and then the money kept coming in. He met a girl who helped stabilize him so he had a good long-term relationship. 
And then we moved in together in San Diego. And that was like the best three years of, you know, of our kind of adult lives, it's like being kids all over again, but as adults with responsibility. And, um, you know, we would go to CrossFit together. We both coached at a gym together. Uh, Glenn introduced me in my thirties to being really fit because you can't be best friends with a Navy SEAL and be schlubby. You get, you kind of got to hold your shit together. So, um, I really embrace that fitness journey. Um, that's really what led me on the path that I've been on ever since is I want to show up and be able to perform. I don't want to be the guy who can't lace up my shoes and go run, lace up my shoes and go hike up a mountain or ride down a mountain or paddle out and surf. I want to be able to be present in the moment and attack whatever's going on. These days, it's more than likely just chasing my five-year-old and my three-year-old around. Um, but you know, you, I do believe that there's a lot of physical preparedness that is really key to the mental game. And, and Glenn introduced me to a lot of that. I, I give, I give full credit cause I, I wasn't paying close attention to it prior to him. Um, but he's, he'd always been a stud athlete and, you know, it rubs off on those around you cause you, you get, it's a bit infectious. So he introduced me to CrossFit. I dove into that. We both drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, I'm sure you've had CrossFit cultists on, on the show before they'll talk Many. about how much they love their <laughs> fitness. Um, and we would joke, we would call it a cult. We were very aware that, that you really dive into it, but the results were phenomenal and they still are now like 13 years later, I wouldn't trade doing that type of activity for, for anything else. So Glenn teed up these experiences and Glenn was my partner in crime. Like I went through a divorce with him. He went through a divorce with me. Like we could share everything. And it was really healing, cathartic. It was all the things to, to have your best buddy to, to go through those times. And those were awesome years. And it sucked to have him deploy and do the things that he did. But it was also funny and fun to be around him. Like he had a deployment in Mexico City once. It's like 2011. And we had to go to the men's warehouse because he had to buy a couple of suits. He's like, well, I'm not going to Iraq. I'm not going to be in camis. I, I have to be in civilian clothes and I'm protecting an embassy assignment. So we go there and Glenn's a short, stubbier guy. He's not, a, you know, he didn't fit into a traditional suit. He had to get everything hemmed. And um, I'll call him a hockey puck just because he's not around to kick my ass. <laughs> and um, so we go in there and the tailor comes up and says, little old lady, and Glenn's standing in front of her in the mirror, and he's like, practices putting his hand in his pocket like this. And he's like, hmm, hmm. And he's like, okay, can I get you to sew two extra pieces of fabric on the left side of the suit uh, in this following square? And she's like, but sir, why? He says, oh, that's where I'm going to holster my gun so I shoot people in the face. <laughs> I'm like, uh... And she was horrified, but it was <laughs> freaking hysterical. And sure enough, she tailors three suits for him and they've got a bunch of extra fabric in them. And, uh, and he's kidding, but you know, he's also doesn't have a filter. So he lets that shit fly. He's like, yeah, you know, if I have to shoot someone in the face, I got to get to my gun. And, um, and it was just that kind of stuff that was just, it was really entertaining to be around him. And of course, like I'm a civilian, like, you know, I don't know anything about this stuff other than what he's teaching me with, but being friends with him, being friends with his friends really brought me into a world of just some really kick-ass, high-caliber humans that are among some of my best friends today. And 
you know, we lived together for almost three years. Uh, you know, we lived together in our teenage years. He used to live with me in high school. He actually moved out of his house and moved into my house when we were teenagers. Then in our 20s, we were ski bums together. Then again, in our late 30s and 40s, we're roommates again. So it's like we've always had these chapters. And, you know, in the fall of 2012, Glenn and I, you know, we, we did our adult thing um, where we had had a moment where we said, hey, you know, like we're in our 40s now. We should probably do all of our legal stuff. So he left his will and his power of attorney and the estate and all that legal stuff to me. And I did it to him. And we had had a joke with my girlfriend who became my wife, was like one of the witnesses. And we joked about it. We said, well, you know, you get all my debt. And Glenn's like, yeah, yeah, you get all my debt. And, and that was like our big adult move. And I didn't really think at the time anything of it that being someone's listed next of kin on their military paperwork or being someone's power of attorney or any of that, it didn't mean anything to me other than it's what we do. Like we, we, sh- we should do these things because I wasn't married. I had a girlfriend, but I, you know, I wasn't going to leave her you know, my 401ks, I left all that shit to Glenn. And we had very specific rules with what we were supposed to do should one of us die. We each had to throw an epic party and the other person had to take the money, whatever was left over from the other guy and spend it amongst the friends and go have epic adventures. So epic party, epic adventures. So fast forward to September of 2012, Glenn is still struggling with what he's going to do next but he makes a call. This is going to be my last deployment. When I get back, I am going to go to the University of Utah. I'm going to enroll in their physician's assistant program. I'm going to become a PA and I'm going to do it. It's going to suck. I'm going to be you know, head down for a couple of years. I've saved enough money. I can do this. You're in charge of the house. And, and, and I'm sort of in this transition where like, I love my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And like, you know, like there's this kind of sense of like, this might be the end of the road for a while. Like, you're going to go do your next chapter. I'm going to go do my next chapter. And hey, man, who knows? And he's stationed in Tripoli. So this is right after the fall of Gaddafi. And Glenn is, you know, goes over there. It's like September 3rd, 4th, 5th, something like that. It was like early September. And he gets over there. He had just broken up with that girlfriend, that long-term relationship that he was in. And he's like, hey, Sean, like, go check in on Shannon. Make sure she's okay. Make sure that she's doing all right. And I'm like, yeah, man, no problem. He's like, go help her find a boyfriend. Go, go, go make sure that she <laughs> finds a boyfriend so that, you know, she, you know, so that there's, no, there's no weirdness when I get home. I'm like, sure, Glenn, no problem. He's like, and don't kill my fucking plants. He's always giving me a hard time about taking care of the house. So... That's, you know, I think that was September 9th or 10th. And on September 11th, I go over, I remember having dinner with Shannon and we're talking about the breakup and Glenn and there's something that happens and there's like some blip on the radar. I can't remember if it was a text message or something on the news that said there was some unrest happening in some spot called Benghazi. And Shannon gets worried about it. I remember we had a quick conversation about it. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Like, and I'm like, wait, Benghazi's, you know, we looked it up and it's like, oh, Benghazi is like three hours away from Tripoli. It's like, you know, it's a three hour flight. It's way, way far away. Like Glenn's in Tripoli, he'd be fine. But I remember going to bed that night and I wrote Glenn a quick email. Hey man, be safe over there. Like keep your head down. I heard there's some shit happening. I wake up the next morning and it's all over the news. 
something is happening in Benghazi. So I hit up Glenn, yo man, I hope you're okay. I hope you're good. Now I can't text him because you know he's he's in a different part of the world. And that's it. I don't hear anything else. I go to the gym that day and I'll never forget. I'm leaving the gym. It's now the morning of September 12th, 9-12. And I get a phone call from a local phone number. And I usually do not answer those calls if I don't recognize the number. And something, some little voice in my head said, answer this one. So I did. And uh, the voice on the other side said, is this Sean Lake? Yes, it is. I need you to return home to 165, you know, my, my house address immediately. Okay. We, we have to meet with you right away. Didn't say who it was. And I just hung up the phone. And I drove straight home and I just fucking knew I had a, just a pit in my stomach. Something happened. What's going on? What's going on? You don't know, but something happened. I pull up to my house. There's two black SUVs parked in, directly in front of my house. And there's a bunch of people in black suits, you know, standing out. I pull up and I'm like, what's going on guys. And I took them into the house in the backyard. We all sat down and they broke the news. Uh, there's a terrorist attack in Benghazi, Libya, and Glenn Doherty was one of four Americans killed over there. They didn't know a lot of information, um, but they said, you know, you're the listed next of kin, so we had to come and tell you. Now, one of the agents that was there to report the news was actually someone I, I knew very lightly through Glenn, which, which helped, and I knew, like, this shit was real. And that kicked me into gear. Um, there wasn't a lot of time for me to grieve and cry and mourn. I, I had those moments, thank God, and 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 I'm you know I'm very happy for that process. But this was a national event. There were news trucks that came up and parked outside of my house that wanted interviews. There were people that wanted scoop. There was newspapers calling, and you know there was all sorts of crazy shit that unfolded from that moment. I'll never forget, like they had to tell me first so that I could then help them disseminate the information. Um, you know, they, they, they went to Glenn's mother's house immediately thereafter. They told his mom and it was, okay, let's circle the wagons. I, I was on the phone for, you know, two days straight and it was get Glenn's family immediately out to Boston to, I'm sorry, to Dover, to Dover Air Force Base to greet the body, to meet the president, to do those things get everyone to Winchester, our hometown, where a very big national event happened to honor Glenn's life. Um, it was like a whirlwind. I mean, I, I'll never forget sitting in the passenger seat with the Hertz driver, driving through the streets of my old hometown with a thousand people on either side of the street. Celebrating a hero and uh shit nine years later it still gets me um and you know a nation really really came together in that time and it was epic in what it was in uh, again channeling grief celebrating patriotism these these heroic deeds that glenn and you know the other navy seal performed and 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 all of those that were in that action were a part of and 
you know, to be in the, in the center of that and then sort of spiriting this legacy was, you know, it was surreal, but it was also, it was the thing to do. So, you know, coming out of that moment in our nation's history, Glenn's friends, Glenn's family, we all had this intense desire to keep his memory alive. This larger than life light bulb, this galvanizing force amongst all these different groups of friends. We wanted to keep his memory alive, wanted to keep him at the table. So Glenn's sister came up with the idea to start a foundation. And we did it in the basement of her house, like right after that funeral ceremony. And we said, you know, let's Let's, let's, let's help others transition out of active duty to civilian life. Let's solve the problem that Glenn never solved for. So we started the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation to help special operators and their families transition out of active duty to civilian life, primarily through scholarship. And it was, it was awesome. And all of a sudden, we were able to channel that energy into helping others. And we got involved in fundraising, and we got charity bibs to the Boston Marathon. And we were raising money in Glenn's memory and Glenn's honor to help others. And Glenn was that guy. He stood for self-improvement. He was always helping others. And we were right there to do that. And that was super healing for me, for his family, for his friends to, to channel that grief energy into a positive outlet. You know, they, there's an old expression that you, you try and find brightness from obscurity. This was the brightness, was honoring Glenn's memory. Glenn didn't want you to cry and be sad for him that he was gone. He wanted you to throw an epic party. Uh, and I did, by the way, we threw an epic party in San Diego in his honor. Um, but that's who he was. So this, the foundation was a way to honor that. And, you know, fast forward several years, there's a movie, 13 hours that came out. There was a congressional hearing that came out. There was all this stuff that happened. And, and then eventually all that popularity started to wane. You know, it wasn't in the news cycle. Hillary Clinton got her wrist slapped pretty hard as well deserved. Um, I could go on for that, but I'm not going to. And, you know, the congressional hearing really afforded me a chance to, to share Glenn's story and legacy. The foundation was up and running. And then, you know, I got married and things started to wind down a little bit. But, you know, we're still involved in sharing Glenn's story most every day. And that's when the idea for Bubs came about. And it was an accident. It was, it was not something that was strategic or sought after. It was just one of those happy occurrences. Um, in early 2017, my wife bought me a jar of collagen protein. It's a supplement. It's a, it's a thing. I didn't even know what it was. She just bought it for me. And she said, hey, you're not getting any younger and I need to preserve your old ass. We're having kids now. And you know, at the time I was 45 years old. She's like, you you're getting up there. We got we got to preserve you. Sounds like what my wife tells me. She's six years younger. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and my you know when you got a decade on your wife, uh, you want to listen to her. Exactly. So I start taking this thing, this collagen. I said, just put it in your coffee and 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 let me know what you think. And I put a scoop in. I drink my coffee. Put a scoop in. Drink my coffee. And I do this for a little less than a month. And around that time, I notice my fingernails are growing like crazy. And I'm like, okay. I used to take supplements with Glenn. It, you know, we used to try BCAAs and creatine and whey proteins and hydration formulas and all the things, right? But I could never really say that anything worked. 
this worked. It was doing something physical to my body that was measurable. Fingernails. My hair started growing. I needed a haircut. I had just gotten a haircut. So I'm like, I'm getting these data points that are saying that this product is doing something to me. Well, about two months into it, the reason I had started taking the product for my wife wasn't for any of those cosmetic benefits. It was for my joints. My knees from all the years of snowboarding sounded like wrinkled up newspaper walking up a flight of stairs. So she's like, you really need this for the joints. Well, it it turns out that collagen is amazing for joint health and joint support. About two months of taking the product, my knees stopped hurting. Now, that is a huge statement coming from me. My knees hurt every day. And all of a sudden, one day, I pop out of bed and my knees don't hurt. It was like an epiphany moment to be like, holy shit, nothing hurts. What the hell is in this stuff? Um, fast forward, you know, a little bit later and my buddy TJ comes over to the house and TJ and I had done a couple of work consulting projects together. Um, and he came over to the house, we're shooting the shit and he sees the jar of collagen on the counter and he's like, Oh, you you take that stuff. And I just start raving. I'm like, James, it's like, I'm talking to you about it. I'm like, it's the best ever. I'm running faster. I'm squatting again. I'm back in the gym. Like I'm hitting PRs. Like this stuff's changed my life. I feel like I'm 30 years old. And he looks at me and he's like, cool. Well, let's start a company. And I'm like, yeah, right, man. Like, what does that look like? And he goes, we're going to start a company. And he's like, let's, you know, what would it look like? And we go, all right, well, we look at each other and we both say at the exact same time, well, whatever we do, we got to do something cool for charity. And I was like, a little light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, holy shit. Well, I know the charity. It's got to be Glenn's charity. And this is exactly the kind of product that Glenn would have taken if he were alive. It stands for self-improvement, just like Glenn did. So we're like, right then and there, we go, all right, we'll start this company. We'll give 10% of profits to to charities in Glenn's name, to Glenn's charity. And Glenn's call sign in the Navy was Bub. So we'll name the company Bub's Naturals as a tribute to Glenn and his way of life, a company that stands for self-improvement in all of our products and is always donating what it can to charitable cause. Fuck yeah. And then we're like, do you think anyone's going to care? I don't know. Let's go find out. So we called Glenn's family. We called his teammates you know, from the Navy. I remember talking to Mike Ritland about it. And I remember, you know, he was one of the guys who said, Glenn would kick your ass if you don't do this. You got to do it. So, you know, we bootstrapped our way into starting a company. We learned about what was in collagen, who made the best collagen. How do we put the best product on the market? Like the absolute pinnacle of purity. And we set out to educate ourselves on that space. Uh, here we are four years later, and it does seem that the world does care about a brand trying to do things a little bit different. It's, uh, I mean, it's incredible. I want to get into not only Bob's, but also I was taking it before we ever connected. We were connected through a kind of intermediary, you know, company, but I 100% contribute that to or attribute that to Jeff Nichols. 
So Jeff is a big, you know, Thorn advocate as well. I use Thorn. They're actually one of the sponsors Huge. of the show. Love, I love those guys. Thorn is like to me is one of the epitomes of how a company should be run when it comes to purity and integrity and authenticity. Absolutely. Um, I, I never knew who they were before starting Bubs. I met them through Bubs, and then when I learned the backstory of their brand and like why it's called Thorn, I was like, these guys are great. I, I, I we're on the same wavelength. Yeah, well, exactly. But what was so great about Jeff, because he does not mince his words, is you know, he took a lot of the glucosamine and the, the joint health supplements. Um, and, you know, he raves about Thorn's creatine and protein and all the other amazing things that they have, the, the multivitamin. But when he started taking bubs, he was blown away that the first time, as you said, measurably, he truly noticed the difference in his, his joints with the, the collagen. So, you know, that is amazing. And then I've, I've been using it myself and seen the same thing. But before we get into the collagen world, I think it's important we educate people on, you know, the, the hows and the whys. Um, I would just love to, if, if it's okay with you, to highlight, the, you know, Glenn and his team, the heroism, like what they were called to do, the numbers that they ended up facing, and taking the politicizing bullshit out of it for a second. In an ideal world, what should have happened so Glenn and his team were able to return home that day? Well, so let's start with the last question and I'll backfill it in a little bit. What should have happened is that they received a level of air support that would have lent itself to a successful extract of all those American lives. So there's about 28 Americans um, and, and foreign aides that were you know, pinned down. I'm going to give you an approximate number. I, I believe it was close to 30. I'll, I'll call it 28. Um, what didn't happen is the receiving of that support. And there were assets that I've been, you know, talked about a fair bit that were within striking distance in the Mediterranean that could have been there within time to offer that aid. In theory, Glenn never should have had to go down there because that aid would have been offered. Glenn's team wouldn't have had to go down there. So again, informally, I don't have security clearance, but I'll tell you what happened. And that movie, 13 Hours, by the way, isn't that horrible in terms of just like a Cliff Notes version of the shit that went down. But the guys in Benghazi, when the attack happened, right, the attack never should have happened. There's a whole set of reasons why that attack shouldn't have happened. That consulate should have had the right guards and armaments to protect themselves so that they never would have been subject to an attack like that. That's that's what should have happened. And there are countless requests that are a matter of public record of the requests for financial aid to build up those properties all around the world so that they wouldn't be subject to those attacks. Now, that's State Department stuff. That's the company I, I almost went to work for. Um, then there's Glenn's role. Remember, Glenn doesn't work for the Department of State. Glenn works for the Central Intelligence Agency. Completely different groups. They're not communicating great. They're, they're in different lanes. In the same town but different lanes. It's like they both know they're there, but they're not, you know, they're not buddy, buddy. Glenn's up in Tripoli. So the CIA guys realize that everything is FUBAR down at the state department complex. And they need to get them out. They got to get in there and help them. Like, but they're being told not to that whole stand down thing is real. Like, Hey, hey you, you protect you. They got to protect themselves. Like, no, no, no. Fuck that. We're all Americans here. We're going to go do the right thing. So, you know, I'm very happy for the team that was stationed in Benghazi to have done what they did to save all those lives. Glenn, for his part, was bouncing off the fucking walls in Tripoli 
trying to get down there because that was Glenn. Glenn rushed into the fight. Glenn wanted to rush in to be with his friends, to do the right thing, to save them. Like that's what he had trained for. Not only that, that's who Glenn was. If you were in danger and you were Glenn's friend, he would be there for you. This was like the ultimate expression of that. Like Glenn and I would joke that like he'd be the one that a friend would call to move the couch up two stories. And he'd be like, fuck, why me? God, I fucking hate this. But he'd always show up and he'd always do it. He's the most dependable friend. Well, professionally, he was the most dependable to get down there. When the chips were in, he was there. So he was in Tripoli and they had to secure a plane. And this is going to go into a little bit of the land of urban legend, but I, I love telling this because this was what was relayed to me and I, I could never prove it or disprove it. But as I understand it, and this is also due to the time of day, Glenn and his team were basically breaking orders, trying to find a plane to charter to get from Tripoli down to Benghazi. Now the attack is happening. It's in full swing. Glenn calls his bank to see if they can wire like $30,000, $50,000 out of his savings account into some account in Tripoli to pay off some chic so that he can charter his plane. Like that is how bad he was trying to fight through the red tape to get an airplane to get him down to that airport in Tripoli, uh, in Benghazi from Tripoli. Well, you know, the CIA chief, whoever the guy was in charge, they end up finding a plane and they end up being able to get on that plane. And this is Glenn. Uh, there's a couple of guys from Delta Force. There's some, another private security uh, agent, like I think it was four or five of them, a translator, that were able to get down to Benghazi. But the adventure that it took for him to get down to Benghazi, it's not covered in the movie, but that was the like part of the real adventure was... That guy was ready to move fucking mountains to join the fight, to save his friends, to be on that rooftop with Tyrone Woods and the others. And he ended up on an airplane for three hours. As I understand it, it was a very nice airplane, like one of those like G8 or some G whatevers. And apparently he was like, got his Blackberry out and he's snapping photos of like him on the plane. Like, like we're in a luxury plane. I'm flying, I'm flying private. Um, I never saw the photos, but I love that guys told me about it. That's also Glenn. He's fight. He's flying into the danger, but he's making light. He's cracking wise. He's he's keeping brevity in the moment because he knows the severity of what is about to happen. And he lands in Benghazi. There's that all back and forth of the different militias, and he eventually gets to the CIA annex. And he shows up. He goes directly inside and administers first aid to those that need it. Like he's the medic. And he patches some people up and without missing a beat, he's on that rooftop next to Tyrone. And this is definitely glorified in the movie that these two guys and, and the others on the other security towers are up against you know, over a hundred different militia members. Like there is a wave and wave. And as I understand it, before those mortars started to strike and ultimately hit the rooftop that Glenn and Tyrone were on, they gave it well to the others they you know i as i understand it and i knew glenn was a hell of a shot he took down some bad guys before that mortar hit and you know there were three mortar strikes and one went long one went short and that's called triangulation and the third one hit 
and before that third one hit, I like to think that Glenn took care of a lot of bad guys. And, you know, that third one hit and Glenn and Ty were killed. They were killed and 28 Americans lived. That gesture of friendship, that gesture of patriotism, that gesture of the ultimate sacrifice happened to my brother, my best friend. And I'm proud to be able to share those stories and continue to be a voice for doing the right thing, for living beyond yourself, for service, whatever that looks like to you. And just to share what an epic kick-ass human my buddy was. So, well, again, I want to I want to thank you for sharing that, and and then we get such a two dimensional report when things like this happen, you know, and it becomes like anything, you know, the, the pulse, Sandy Hook, whatever. Immediately they're pulled into pro gun, anti gun, you know, you name it. It's and the the actual story of the human beings on the ground is is lost in the white noise. So to hear your story, you know, Glenn's story, the parallel, the crossover, you know, the the ultimate heroism that he and Ty showed in saving so many lives and fighting to the end and running towards the bullets when everyone else is running away needs to be heard. So thank you, firstly, just for, for sharing the story. Thank you. Yeah, you know, and obviously, like, I, it's been nine years, and it, parts of that still get me, like that memorial in Winchester, like, it's an emotional thing to, to revisit and to go through. Um, and it's also worth celebrating and that's, you know, that's key in all of this. So yeah, you know, I've gone through major traumatic loss twice. Um, I had a different call to action each time and you know, it's, it's definitely a surreal experience to start a company uh, and just to start a company. It's another one to start a company in the memory of your best friend and his legacy and memory. Um, and it just feels right. You know, it's, it's felt right to celebrate what he stood for, to inspire others into better living, better health, better wellness. And, and knowing that we're able to help others along the way, man, like that's the juice worth squeezing. That's the good stuff. Absolutely. Well, that altruistic uh, business model, I love social, I think it's social business, I think is a term, but you know, take it because it's 10%, isn't it? Of every sale goes back into the charitable. Have I got that right? 10, 10% of profits. Yes. And that's an important distinction. So, so we've given a little over $125,000 um, to charitable cause. About 115000 of that has gone directly to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. We're not profitable. <laughs> we're growing. So like you're investing everything back in the growth of the company, but we, we just are, are hell bent on finding ways to help others. And, and obviously in scaling this so that you are profitable and you can grow and give even more. That's, that's the magic, but yeah, no, we we're committed to giving and, and we've, we've given more than we should in terms of, you know, being fiscally responsible, but eh, you know, like uh, that, 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 that's part of the magic and, and, and part of the lessons you learn along the way. Absolutely. Well, I love that though, you know, because then you're, you're, 
your one of your motivations, of course, you know, building a, a business and, and making money, but also the bigger your business is, the more money you make for that social purpose. So it's a win-win. And it blows my mind that more, I guess it doesn't blow my mind because I see how a lot of uh, consumerism is, but I think that model should be embraced by more people because then a lot of, you know, the people behind it, the people that, that are actually working in the business itself know that there's something bigger than just the profit margin, um, you know, when they come to work every day. You got it. Yeah. Hands down. And, and it's, a, it's a big driver for us. And, and it's just, you know, again, it's the feel good moments. It's knowing that you're contributing to someone else doing just doing, making change in their lives. And it could be the person that buys the product that says, Hey, my knee stopped hurting and I'm a plumber and I've been working for, you know, 30 years and I just discovered this stuff and I, I can work better. Uh, it's, it's the mom that says, you know, she had some GI issues and they've, they've gone away and, and how grateful she is to have discovered something that can be a part of her life. Uh, it's a scholarship that, you know, was received and you get a personal note from one of those recipients saying, thank you, because what you're doing is allowing me to do what I'm doing. It's, it's all that. Absolutely. I wouldn't trade it. It's, it's, it's good stuff. So, well, I'm on so, a, yeah. I'm on a wellness journey right now. I transitioned out the fire service. I brought a lot of injuries with me between, between that's the stunt work I did, you know, martial arts. And so I'm sure you had the same when you get to your late forties, you're like, all right, how do I unfuck myself from all the things I did in my twenties and thirties? Um, and one of the big things I had meniscus tears on both knees. I've been just starting doing, uh, Ben Patrick's knees over toes workouts. Um, and, but at the same time, as of about, God, probably a couple months ago now, I started taking, you know, the collagen, your collagen. And I have been noticing the things you talked about, the strengthening of the, the nails and the hair. And, but also, you know, there is an improvement in joints where I was taking some of the joint supplements before. And, and as Jeff pointed to, not really seeing much of anything. Um, yeah. so what I'd love to do first is reverse engineer. What is it about the diet in 2021 that sees us maybe lacking in collagen? And then let's talk about all the different areas of the body that you've discovered collagen actually helps. Yeah. So, so think of the American diet, like you can't, you're hard pressed to naturally find in nature today in a, in a traditional, you know, Western diet access to the proteins that are going to benefit collagen production in your body. I'm sorry. You can do a great red meat diet. You can do, you can find your different proteins and livers and organ meats, and you're going to do okay, but you're not going to get the level of collagen that, you know, it used to be in nature probably you know years ago, but then again, the life expectancy was quite a bit shorter back then. So supplementing with collagen and adding to collagen is key. Now, now let me, let me give that some context. Collagen is the most abundant protein in your body. You have more collagen in your body than any other protein. So, so James, literally, when you think of your body, muscle, skin, hair, joints, bones, your intestines, all collagen. So this very abundant protein in your body naturally stops being produced in your 20s. Well, you don't think about that because as a teenager, you're just full of piss and vinegar and you know, I can do no wrong. And your 20s are largely the same, but that's when it starts to decrease. So your collagen production is going through the roof and all of a sudden they get a little bit less of it every single year. So in the 30s, little aches and pains show up in your 40s, 
the real aches and pains show up. And if you're active, you're a firefighter, you're practicing martial arts, you're training in the gym, you're living a full active lifestyle, man, the wear and tear just starts to pile up. And you don't want to surrender to that, but you do, or a lot of people do. So looking into your diet, looking into your nutrition is one of the ways, it's not a biohack, it's called living that you just want to get into so that you can keep maintaining a high level of activity. So collagen is very new to the, to the market. It's new to the Western diet. Like it used to be in topical creams and it was promoted for like, you know, voluptuous skin. That, that was kind of its, its beauty marketing. Well, that was really just gelatin. So jello is a type of collagen, right? It's from the bone. It's from the bone marrow. It, it congeals. So think of what gelatin does in water. Like if you pour jello into water, it congeals. That's what collagen does to your body. It's a glue. It holds your body together. Skin is tighter. Fingernails are stronger. Your connective tissue is more supported. Your bones are denser. Your, your intestines are protected and fortified. Your joints move better. They're, you know, they're cushioned better. It's all of those things are tied into collagen production. So when you supplement with collagen that is now commercially available, and it's available either through bone, which is kind of a, a lower grade form of collagen, or the hide of the animal, again, connective tissue, that's where you can start to supplement and really see these benefits. So you put two to three scoops of collagen a day, you know, 20, 30, 40 grams of collagen per day, you're helping to offset those aging effects. And that's what you're experiencing now a couple months in on this journey. Your fingernails are growing like crazy. Your hair is a little bit fuller and your joints start moving better. So let's talk about the joints. My favorite example, because I think it's the most functional to talk about, even if you don't have joint discomfort, there's this little thing called synovial fluid. Synovial fluid is in all of our joints. It helps us move. You know, you stay flexy and bendy. Well, Synovial fluid production wanes because that is a byproduct of an amino acid called glycine. A good quality collagen is loaded with glycine. Glycine produces synovial fluid. The more synovial fluid you have, the more your joints are cushioned and the more comfortable and, and the better bendy flexy that they are. You can just move better. Well, our collagen is loaded with glycine. Awesome. It's also loaded with a bunch of these other essential amino acids. And those amino acids each form a role in your connective tissue health. You know, whether it's glutamine, proline, you know, glycine's my go-to, also helps with sleep. Like, cool. There's some magic and it's so simple. All collagen is, our collagen, it's a fancy ground-up cowhide. There's nothing, you know, sexy about it. It's actually what's amazing about it is the simplicity and purity of what the ingredient is. And our job is to make it the best in terms of flavor, solubility, performance, and then take that out to you and to everyone else and to, to get it independently tested and certified for quality. So that's why Jeff Nichols kind of like discovered us was we're NSF certified for sport. We're the only brand that I know of that takes all of its collagen, every single piece of it, and certifies it as NSF for sport. We're also one of two brands that has the Whole30 approved mark on our packaging. And that's a big clean eating diet protocol that is massively important. It's a big reset diet to help you with inflammation and to really educate yourself about what foods work for you and which ones don't. 
So we got both. No one else has got both. I, I love that. Um, some of them have one, but they don't have the other. And, and that's how we wanted to go to market. I wanted Bub's Naturals to stand for the absolute pinnacle in terms of quality. We're not charging more because we are the best. We just wanted to put the best out there and make it discoverable to people so that when they're making that purchase choice, they don't lean towards the bottom of the barrel on Amazon and get a product that they don't love. Because if you don't love it, you won't take it and you won't adapt it and you'll never get those health benefits from it. But if I can make a truly great product that you like taking, that you can adapt into your daily routine to where you finally get to the point now where you see those benefits, man, you're in for life. We got you. Like you're, you're on board. You're part of the Bub's family and it just gets better and better and better. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Um, like I said, to, to have tried other things, you know, and, and to, to have the positive placebo effect, excuse me, the placebo effect where you have an expectation for it to work. You're not, you're not, you know, waiting for it to fail, but a lot of these other ones really didn't. And I've had, you know, issues, especially with my knees for, for years and years. So, you know, seeing this and again, being 47, you know, I've always had very dry skin. I mean, even the, the, the skin side, you know, I mean, we don't, as men want to lose our hair, we don't want to have nails that flake off. Um, so there's that element too, but there's probably no one listening that's in the tactical space that doesn't have aches and pains in some areas, you know, and the mobility is going to help and, you know, nutrition is going to help. But when I look at, for example, at my um, protein consumption, when I do have a steak or chicken, I'm like a surgeon. If there's a, a piece of sinew, a piece of fat, that fucking thing is off. Like I'm so anal about that. Not because of the fat content, just because I was a son of a vet and my dad would bring God knows what roadkill and throw it in a stew. So I think it just scarred me for life. So I don't get naturally, like you said, I'm fully aware that I don't get a lot of the stuff. I don't eat a lot of the awful meats. Um, so, you know, the, the common sense element resonates with me, but then the actual products. And again, I'm, I only shout from the rooftops about things that I truly have used and, you know, believe in. Um, here you've got this cowhide. You're like, well, that's got to be disgusting. I put it in with my thorn protein shake and it's both products end up being incredibly smooth. I was on a cruise, so I couldn't do my protein. So I put it in orange juice and mixed it up. Yep. So that's what's crazy too, is you have this ground up cowhide, yet it, is, you know, like you said, it, it kind of blends in with whatever you've got. So you don't feel like you're having to take medicine or anything. Um, you know, and it's not overly sweetened like some of these supplements are. Um, but as far as bang for the buck, as far as knowing that you're actually doing something good in the world with it, um, I, I mean, I was absolutely amazed. And like, like I said, I've, I've used supplements on and off for a long time. I've been exposed to Thorn and seen how great a lot of their products are. So yeah. I had a good baseline and, you know, I totally understand why Jeff raves about it because I saw the same thing in myself. Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny when, when I first met Jeff, it was after he had gone on Instagram and announced on Instagram that he was, that he had bought two jars of collagen protein. He bought vital proteins and Bub's naturals. And he said, I'm going to test these two and I'm going to come back to you in a month and tell you which one's legit and which one sucks. You know, something very blunt the way he delivers that message. <laughs> and I remember TJ and I talked and I was like, TJ, did you give Jeff Nichols bubs? He's like, no, did you? I'm like, no. We're like, oh shit, what's going to happen? Like <laughs> we didn't know. He found us, you know, random organic, bought the product, tested it. 
And then we tuned in when he like uh, the big unveiling. I'd never spoken to him. I, I had no idea who this guy was other than what his presence was on Instagram. And then he rolls it out and he says, I choose bubs. And he's like, this is why he talked about our amino acid profile, the flavor, the solubility. And I reached out to him after that. I, I wrote an email and I was like, Hey, uh, we're the bubs guys. Uh, y- y- you want to talk? And it was great. He was like, he's like, yeah, you guys got great shit. Appreciate it. And he was like, you know, I, I found you guys. I tested it out. He's like, you're no bullshit. You pass the test. He's like, the day your stuff sucks, I'm out. You got to <laughs> prove it every day. And I'm like, I freaking love that mentality. And, uh, and he's a, a fantastic, you know, guy to have in the fold and bounce ideas off of and share things with. And you get an unfiltered, honest um, conversation every time. And I, I couldn't be more happy to have that. Um, but, you know, quality is key. You know, if you want someone to stick with you, you better deliver the goods. Thorne does that incredibly well. We strive to do that in everything we do. Just deliver and and continue to deliver and deliver those health results because that's really, that's the magic. Absolutely. Well, I haven't tried the MCT yet. Is the MCT ever got that right? Yeah, MCT oil powder. So powder, yeah. effectively, it's, it's a consider it like your, your favorite non-dairy creamer. So we take an MCT oil, which is a great medium chain triglyceride. It's a healthy fat source. And you throw it into tapioca starch. So it's a powder. Um, and then you use it in place of dairy as a creamer in your coffee. So it's got a little coconutty flavor to it. And what it really does is deliver healthy fats. So your body is using those healthy fats for energy. So not like sugar where you spike and crash. Think energy for hours. Then you also use it, your brain uses. So the MCTs pass through the blood brain barrier and your brain eats those for food. So you get this great mental focus. So you get this great, you know, cognitive function behind it and a sustained amount of energy. So I, I swear by MCT oil every day, you know, in my coffee, just gives you that little, just a little extra gear. Brilliant. So I've got to try that. What I have been trying though, is the apple cider vinegar um, gummies. And I, again, had another brand that my wife was taking before. So I had something to compare it to, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's another great tasting product. Again, it's coming from the same mission, the same background. So talk to me about the health benefits of that. So, you know, apple cider vinegar has been used for ages. And, and the thing about primarily is like immune support. Like why do you use vinegar? You're killing bacteria, you're killing things off. Like you're, you're getting rid of the bad stuff. So that, that's, a, that's definitely an essential component to why you would take apple cider vinegar. It also promotes a good clean energy, which is everyone can use a little bit more even on top of the MCT because it's not a spike energy. Um, but also think about your metabolism and how you're digesting food. So it's really satiating. So if you're say on the middle of your day and you haven't had lunch yet, or you're, you're going to, you sort of have this, this window between lunch and dinner and when you're like just famished, very satiating. So it allows you to play through. So it's good for the metabolism, but all of that, it also has, uh, you know, a little bit of prebiotic fibers in it. So you get a little bit of digestive aid as well. So it's just a good, keep the body tuned up kind of thing to have. And, you know, you pop two, three, four of those a day. Um, we may or may not go through half a bottle sometimes when you're really grinding it out and, you know, you're, you're, you're just doing the body right. Beautiful. Well, I mean, it's been such a great conversation to to 
hear the full backstory up to you know where Bubs was was created and the health benefits of the products. And again, I I can attest there's a reason why you know I reach out to people and when even though there was an intermediary that reached out um, and connected us, like I said I already had your powder sitting on my fridge. So I'm like, yeah. And then when I learned more about the story behind it, because I just knew it was called Bubs, I'm like, well, fuck yeah. Now we're definitely you know doing this. Um, so I appreciate that. If you've got time, I'd just love to throw a few closing questions at you. Yeah, yeah, let's uh, let them rip. Brilliant. Okay, so the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, so there was a book I read, th- th- there's two books I read that I found to be fascinating. Um, w- one has got absolutely nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. It's called Moneyball. And what I enjoyed about Moneyball was it really educated me to get out of my gut thinking and look at analytics to make good decisions. I found that book fascinating as to unlock some future decision-making things. Um, There's also a book that I've read and, and I read kind of funny enough, not through Glenn, but as a way to kind of understand a little bit around his life called The Things They Carry. And I recommend that book to anyone. Um, just really start strong uh, language. Um, there's a book I've read recently that I've reread, and I don't reread a lot of books. And this is definitely would fall into the kind of self help book, but it's a it's a it's a great educational book by a guy named Dr. Doug Brackman called Driven. And Driven is a fascinating book in terms of just understanding your own psyche, your propensity for self-sabotage and kind of road mapping your way into being as constructive with your time as you can. Um, the most recent book that I read was a little bit of an offshoot of Driven called The Four Agreements. Um, I also recommend that one. And I'm not throwing enough fiction out there. I threw a couple, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. It's funny, the four agreements, I've had it mentioned multiple times, but I swear almost every guest, the last 10 interviews that I've done have all mentioned that book. So I just wrapped it up. And I mean, it's it's so simple. It's so concise, but yet it's incredibly hard to do some of the things in, in it, but you got to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, God, I, I was when I was talking to one of the other guests, I'm, like, I'm sure I own it. So I've got to go through this monstrous bookshelf behind me and see if I can find it. But um, yeah, I mean, if I haven't, then I need to buy it for Christmas. So thank you you for that. All right. Well, the same kind of question. What about a movie and or documentary that you love? Oh, all right. So I just finished watching Dear Rider documentary. Um, It's the Burton story. Um, it's about Jake Burton Carpenter and, and his journey. And I found that as a person who's been in the culture and sport, very, very inspiring. It goes well beyond snowboarding. Um, and I, I highly encourage people to watch that documentary. Um, you know, there's a shoot. What was the Red Bull documentary that was done on that climber? Um, that the first ascent, um, you're talking about, um, Alex Honnold. Free solo. Yes. Yeah. Um, that would be another one that's kind of like, it's funny. I call it kind of like not see to your pants, but definitely it, 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 it helps you put yourself in a very uncomfortable place. And if you can watch something like that, that makes you uncomfortable. I find that to be, uh, 
to, to be really entertaining. Um, I can't go without mentioning um, what's called the usual suspects it was an old nineties movie. That was just a, a classic kind of whodunit, especially because there's a famous Hungarian character in it. Um, that's just like cult classic, great shit there. Um, and of course I was raised on star Wars. So, you know, can do no wrong there. Now, have you seen a film called the Alpinist? TJ just watched The Alpinist and he was like, you think Free Solo is good? He's like, that's like kindergarten. Go watch The Alpinist and like really shit your pants. <laughs> I think it was um, Rachel who, uh, was it Rachel? I think it was Rachel Vickery who, who recommended it. And she said, this guy um, is the guy who is Alex Honnold's hero. Like he's blown away and it's, yes. I, well, I can't say anything really about it because it's such a journey. It would be an absolute tragedy to, to mention any part other than just, just watch it. If you enjoyed free yeah. solo, you will absolutely love the Alpinist as well. And it's I, extremely what, powerful. So, I'm so psyched. You mentioned it because I can't recommend it because I haven't seen it. It just got recommended to me with the ultimate enthusiasm. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a range of like kind of recent documentaries that, you know, I've tuned into and um, and of course, you know, a, a couple feature films that, you know, that are, that, are, that are pretty good stuff. I have a three year old and a five year old now, so the last movie I watched was was Paw Patrol the movie. So you know, I'm not I'm not a good resource right now <laughs> <laughs> for for more recent content. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then, speaking of all the incredible people that you've worked with and 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 know, is there a person or are there any people that you'd recommend as a guest to come on this podcast and speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I'm going to say you, you get Clint on here, 100 deadly skills. Um, not only well-spoken, but his story is phenomenal. He's been um, on he, he, his book. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I've had, I've, him. Had, I've had Clint and Mike on the show already. Well, those were my two. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm going to give you a third one, but it's only if you can handle a ton of F-bombs. Oh, well, so I, I the, have the to guy, pull them back myself. So, that, yeah. <laughs> so Shane Hyatt. Shane Hyatt was a, a Navy SEAL, Team 3. I think he served 16, 17 years. He is a no-bullshit individual. He's like born and raised in New Mexico. Like, uh, fascinating guy. I think he got his college degree in philosophy, and, which means he can argue like a motherfucker. And incredibly imposing physical presence, like big, strong, wide guy, uh, mouth like a sailor, uh, talks endless amounts of crap, but incredibly articulate, smart. Uh, he makes custom knives for a living now, but he was in that same platoon with Mike and Clint and Glenn. Um, I would say you, you could do, you'd be doing yourself a solid by talking with him. What's the um, name of his knife company? Is it half... No, Half Face Blades is a, is a local San Diego company. Okay. Shane owns SH9 Edgeworks. Okay. So SH, like, you know, Shane Hyatt, uh, the number nine Edgeworks. And he just makes some amazing blades. I mean, he's got some, some really kick-ass skill sets there. And the adventures of his life and where he's gone and the things he's done along the way are, are pretty epic. And, and I, def, I count him as a very close friend. And, and a great person to have on the podcast. And there's, I'm going to rattle off more names that you would say, oh, they've already been a guest. They've already been a guest. <laughs> if you haven't had Shane on, I'm going to just lock in on Shane. Beautiful. Now, what about um, Sean White? Is he someone that's accessible? Because, I mean, seeing the, the kind of 
I guess, courage and transparency that he brought to Weight of Gold and the other athletes to all of them on that. Um, he seems like you'd be an amazing person to talk to, but if it was someone that was down to earth and, and accessible, because I get that a lot of people. Accessible is tricky. I yeah. mean, he's, he kind of like lives in kind of a rock star place. Like I see him here locally in Encinitas when he comes down to visit his mom and his dad and stuff like when he's, when he's here, I don't see him that often. Um, but get him through the Olympic season. Remember we're, we're going into a winter Olympics right now. He's in the middle of trying to make the team. So he's like, oh, he's absolutely. all in on that journey. Right focus. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Get him through that. And then, uh, and then, you know, you'll, you'll get better access. So aim for that one comes spring, reach out to me. Um, yeah, I'm buddies with his coach and, and his agencies and stuff. It's just a matter of scheduling. Cause he's, he runs a pretty busy one. Beautiful. I appreciate that. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, where to find Bubs, what do you do to decompress? I meditate every day. And and that is a super key thing. I practice an active type of meditation that I learned from that book, Driven, and I have applied it in my life for the last five years. And I I can't believe I didn't know about this before. I wish I had. And that is one of the fundamentals that I do every day that allows me to really greet the day and engage in whatever is going to happen with the best possible mindset and kind of solution oriented approach. Uh, it's a, it's a level of, of open curiosity to problem solving instead of emotional reaction. So I like to say the meditation allows you to respond to situations, not to react to situations. Um, and fitness Fitness is the best physical expression of cleaning the mental slate. I don't care what you have going on in the world and what's troubling you. You get after it in the gym. You are going to approach those problems with a better mindset or be better and more present with your wife and your children and your family and your loved ones and your friends and all the things you're just, you're more there. You're locked in. Um, and, and, you know, you, you have to take time for yourself too. You know, you can't help others if you haven't helped yourself. That's a common expression. You go on an airplane, they say, put your ma- uh, the, the mask on yourself before helping others. That's real. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of buckets in life that you have to feed and you have to fill those buckets constantly. But if you ignore a bucket, that bucket is going to suffer. Friends, family, finance, fitness, fun. Faith, these are all buckets that you have to service. Um, and I just try and be conscious of that and make sure that, hey, if I haven't had fun in a while, I better go for a surf. I better go, I better go get on a snowboard and strap in. Um, if I'm not being great at home, if I'm not being as present, I better invest there. Got to make sure the finance works. Got to make sure the work element is in tune. You, know, you have to constantly service these areas. And I think we, we do ourselves a disservice by overly focusing on one. If I'm just at the gym every day, I'm probably not making much money. And uh, I might look good naked, but that's not going to help with these other areas. So you got to allocate your time. Be smart about it. Beautiful. I appreciate that. Yeah. With um, you might me with CrossFit as well, just as a, a tangent quickly, did you and Glenn both work with the Seal Fit team for a while, Mark Devine? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we both worked for Mark. So uh, we joined the gym in 2008. Um, I was like the head of sports marketing at DC shoes. Glenn had just gotten out of the Navy. We both were, you know, living up here in North County and Glenn's like, Sean, I found Jim in Encinitas. It's like right down the street from where we live. It's owned by a Navy seal. It was Mark divine. He's like, he needs me at his gym. He needs a Navy seal at his gym. 
So I'll never forget, like we roll in there and Glenn's just walking around the joint like he owns. And he's like, he's like, Hey, I'm here. Let's go. Let's work out. And I was kind of like, I'm with that guy. (laughs) And next thing you know, we're both members at the gym and, you know, a year goes by and Mark Devine and I, we all become friends. It's a very intimate community. CrossFit gyms that are well-run are great community drivers and, you know, Mark, we all just became fast friends. And I remember about a year into 2009, Mark's like, Sean, you've been a member at this gym for a year and you've never paid a dime. I got to get my money out of you somehow. So I want you to go and take your level one CrossFit certification and become a coach. And Glenn was already coaching at the gym because he knew so much about fitness anyways. So I'm like, okay, I'll go do my level one. I'll, I'll become a CrossFit coach. And I started coaching at the gym while I was doing my day job. I just coached like the morning classes before going into work. Absolutely loved it. But yeah, for, for several years there, right till the very end, um, Glenn and I both coached at Seal Fit. We both coached the Kokoro camps. So those immersive camps to, you know, take people through the Seal Fit experience. Um, we both shared in that. Um, it, was a, it was a fantastic experience. I went through the camp. Um, you know, I was 39 years old. I went through it and got that, that kind of hell week simulated experience. And then on the back end of that, I was invited to coach it and be a part of it. And, and that's really where you, you know, I started to unlock a lot of those, that the potential that's behind the training, what, what Mark offers in his unbeatable mind uh, programming and, and what he offered at that time when the gym was alive, it was fantastic. You just saw people changing their lives right around you and really tapping into their potential. And it was awesome to be a part of that community for years. That's amazing. One of my friends from my gym just went through Kokoro literally like two weeks ago and he had a blast. He loved it. He made it through. But I had Mark and Mark was actually probably one of my earliest guests, probably around episode 40-ish if I'm guessing. But um, yeah, I mean, amazing. Some of the programming for the seal fit versus CrossFit. I'm like, there seems to be a zero here. Is there supposed yeah. to be an extra zero? A <laughs> hundred rope climbs, are he, you sure? <laughs> oh yeah, when he's like, we're going to do a thousand push-ups. I'm like, excuse me, a thousand. <laughs> How are we going to do it? How are we going to problem solve this? How are we going to you know, get through this? And, and we, we used to do that stuff all the time. It was great. We called them these operator workouts and then there'd be these monthly challenges. And it was like, you're going to do 100 rope climbs for time. How fast can you do 100 rope climbs all the way up 15 feet, touch the ceiling back down. And uh, it gets real slippery and dangerous there around, you know, 80, 90, and you just got to make it to a hundred and here, you know, and physically got to make the mental and physical stuff work for you. It was, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. I, I took that from, from the internet. I did that very workout, but I was at the fire station and I had a, a rope that I strung up from a tree that I had to take down in case people thought it was some sort of racist <laughs> symbol. <laughs> um, but uh, I would climb it, but it was my shins, like doing the, the rap, you know, I just yeah. tore the hell out. So it wasn't so much the muscle fatigue, but it was a point where I was just bleeding all over my uniform. I'm like, okay, I probably need to <laughs> stop this long, now. Long pants and tall socks, my friend. Exactly. And then eventually duct tape. You just duct tape it up so your shins don't tear apart. Dude, I had so many skin marks on my shins. I remember doing a bunch of rope climbs, tearing up my shins. I had to go snowboarding um, like three days later and it was just this giant raspberry. And I'm like, okay, this is where my fitness is impeding on my fun. (laughs) There's the buckets. One bucket's a little too full. (laughs) Exactly. But great stuff. Yeah. Mark divine is an absolute legend and the training that he has and the, the amount of people that he's coached into a better, more productive life is, uh, is inspiring. It's awesome. 
Absolutely. Well, so I'm sure people listening, we've been through so many amazing different areas here from Hungary to Benghazi and everywhere in between. Um, where can people find Bubs Naturals? And then where can they reach out to you, follow you specifically on online? Yeah. So, so all of our social handles for Bubs Naturals and our website is just that. It's bubsnaturals.com for our website, B-U-B-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S. Uh, dot com. And then our social handles for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the things is at Bubs Naturals. Uh, and then I'm out there just at Slako, S-L-A-K-E-O. Um, you know, we, we do fun things with the brand on Instagram. We host Instagram lives every couple of weeks. Uh, I had Jeff Nichols on as a guest. Uh, as you scroll back a couple of months, he's on there. We have this great conversation about comic books and skateboarding and all the fun stuff. But yeah, those are our social handles. That's where you find us, uh, Bubs Naturals. And yeah, I mean, for anyone out there who's, who wants to take that journey, try us out. Give it a shot. You're, you're, you're not going to go wrong. You're going to help yourself and you're going to help someone else along the way. Beautiful. Well, Sean, I just want to say thank you. I mean, one thing I always say when someone recounts a story that takes them to a place that hurts is, you know, I understand that that takes a little piece, but I mean, the value that telling that story has and the ripple effect and, and also honoring Glenn's legacy um, is so, so powerful. So to, for you to go down that road and, and, and kind of relive that moment and tell us, you know, his incredible story. And then, like I said, the inception of the company, I just truly, truly appreciate you being so, so generous and, you know, vulnerable in this conversation. Thanks, man. Why, well, you know, you, you never know uh, where these conversations are going to lead when you start them. And uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure because, yeah, you, you got me to go down some memories there that I, I haven't visited in a while. And uh, I, I'm absolutely grateful to be able to re-experience those and share those with you and, uh, and hear about some of your past as well. So thank you, James. Thank you.